Okay, recording, go. G'day and welcome to the bar. I'm Nick, joined here as always with my lovely co-host, Georgia. Georgia, how are you? Good, good. Hey, hey, everyone. Excited to be back again for another episode. Back again, mid-sem vibes. Yeah, it's getting to that tough point of semester, I'm not going to lie. The assignments are stacking up and the tears are rolling down my face, but we're getting there. There's only so many readings you can do while also trying to get your assignments done. It's that time, but... You know, the bar's here to kind of bring a little bit of an uplift to your week, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. Um, We do have a really exciting episode today with the wonderful Penny Croft. But before that, Georgia, your favourite of the week. Yes. So, without talking about whether this is a good idea or not from a policy perspective. Okay. But my favourite thing is using my Dine and Discover vouchers. Yeah. Great going great yeah so i used my first one last night mm-hmm. i know i'm a little bit behind on the eight ball and the game but, mm-hmm. you know me being behind on technological stuff is <laughs> standard um and i went to unlimited tappets with some friends last night wow very yeah. nice highly recommend lola kachina in crow's nest for anyone wondering dinner was like half the price it was amazing what that's a good great time. Yeah. but they... i'm enjoying it and open yeah. to ideas yeah um particularly for the discover ones yeah i'm hearing that places like bars and cinemas are giving you a lot more than 25 dollars worth of items just to get you in the door yeah yeah which makes sense a friend of mine went to um bondi junction event cinemas and for one dine and discover card you get two tickets popcorn drinks you get all this stuff for just the voucher because like you know movies have been the cinemas have been hit pretty hard recently so it makes sense and it's all free also for our well i was gonna say for our uts listeners most almost everyone's uts here but uh i went to dodgy dumplings and used my diner discover card my bill was 30 cents (laughs) 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 life is good good on you yeah that's good there you go. Okay, yeah. what's your favourite of the week? Chess. Chess? I'm, okay. having, I'm having a chess comeback. Ooh, do you play it online or in person? Okay, so I had a massive chess thing when we were in year 12. Mm-hmm. A bunch of us who had free periods at the same time just instead of studying started playing chess online. Mm-hmm. And they were all smarter than me, so they were really good at it. Yeah. But, you know, I liked it. It was fun. Mum got me a chess board for Christmas oh. that year. After me, oh, okay. it, the year of year 12, because I was so into it. She was like, yep. oh, I love chess. And I was like, yeah, by that time I was over it. But <laughs> it was good. It was good to get. And now, then I used to play here and there, like physically, like with yep. an actual chess board. And I used to think, oh, online sucks. But no, now this this revolution has been online, chess.com. Mm-hmm. I, I'm sad to say that I'm now a paying member of the website. Ooh. Yeah. Um, so what does paying get you? unlimited lessons which is what got me in so they do like little tutorials and like they'll they'll explain to you a concept and then you do a few like moves to figure out that concept um but they limit you to one lesson per seven days and every lesson is only three minutes so it's infuriating to do one and then wait seven days and you get a bunch of other benefits like you converse all these different bots who have different styles and then it helps you learn as well as playing online that's cool. I think something I never I didn't understand years ago, well, until I watched The Queen's Gambit. Yeah, never seen it. Really? No. Okay, you should go watch that. Yeah. Chess and loved it. 
And yeah. I don't have any interest in chess. I've never seen yeah. Queen's Gambit, but I was talking to a friend at work about chess, and she goes, oh, have you seen the um uh, uh, that sexy chess show? That's how she described <laughs> Queen's game. Gambit. Yeah, I don't know. So, I don't know if it's so sexy. Maybe they make chess sexy? I don't know. I didn't really ponder, I but guess, it was very funny. Yeah, yeah. Like, interesting. Yeah, yeah. maybe that's what she meant. Yeah, probably. Uh, but just, enough, no. enough chess. <laughs> enough chess. Let's get to the important stuff. So today, we have the wonderful Penny Croft on. Welcome to the bar. Thank Penny. you. Thanks. Penny is an associate professor at UTS. She's an international expert on criminal law, models of culpability, and the legal regulation of the sex industry. She's done a lot of really impressive and important research over her time as a legal academic today we sit down with her to explore some of that as well as some of the really cool papers she gets to write so we'll start with our first question that we ask everyone if you could take one person to the bar who would it be i'm not really a bar kind of girl but Mm -hmm. i am a very serious champagne drinker and i like people who are frivolous and fun Mm. Mm -hmm. preferably smart as well Mm. So I was thinking Truman Capote, okay. but I also have this thing about dead people coming back to life and zombies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so then I was going to do Parker Posey. Okay. She's like this obscure, I don't know how obscure she is, but she's pretty awesome. She was in Best in Show, Blade 3. She's pretty... An she's, Yeah, she's yeah. awesome. Yeah. So I thought she might be fun. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> we're not, we're not I, familiar with her. I don't know yeah. who she is. No, check her out. She's really quirky and, mm-hmm. yeah, and I was kind of thinking, yeah, she'd be fun, but I could change my mind next week. But... <laughs> Any particular things you'd want to find out? Maybe the Hollywood thing? No, I just no. want to have fun. Yeah. 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 And yeah. drink good champagne. What yeah. is yeah. good champagne to you? I'm open to recommendations. Oh, I'm pretty mainstream. Okay. Like, mm. I actually don't have much taste in champagne, especially mm. after the first couple of glasses. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's the first thing you're reaching for normally? Trilogy? Uh... <laughs> no? That's what I drink. It's trilogy. <laughs> Isn't it just like trilogy. a cheap? Passion pop. No, that's bad. I was introduced to Bollinger. Okay. And it is very nice. Yeah, so Mm -hmm. we're we're in different Yeah, different. Different different leagues. (laughs) (laughs) But I I do move. And I do like Australian sparkling too, like Croses. Okay. Nice. Nice. Check it out. Yeah. Uh, Well, we didn't bring on Penny just to talk about (laughs) (laughs) champagne. Um, But what I think a lot of people, definitely amongst our friends, uh, know the name Pennycroft, the first thing we think of is the legendary textbook, uh, the legendary crim textbook. Uh, in, its official name is... Criminal Ele- Law Elements. Criminal Law Elements, mm. which is kind of like, for the Harry Potter people out there, it's kind of like, if you know um, the Half-Blood Prince potions book, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah in the movie, Georgia doesn't know, Georgia's yeah. shaking her head, <laughs> she had no childhood, that's fine. Uh, <laughs> but... For anyone that doesn't know, it's a it's a textbook Harry comes across which has all these notes on it and it helps him ace the quizzes because it was written, it was Snape's textbook and it just has all the little codes that you can smash out these exams. And I think mm. that's kind of what that crim textbook was like for a lot of us. It meant mm. that my reading time was halved and I, you know, came out crim okay despite you the amount of time I You still did it. a lot of reading around crim, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, yeah, it's kind of a lot of family and friends kind of beg me mm. to be in the problem questions. Mm. But no one actually wants to be a victim. So <laughs> it's kind of, it gets a bit challenging where people are like, now I want to be the murderer. <laughs> so uh, it's, and, and also I'm kind of like, can I put nieces and nephews in 
Like mm. if they're really young, is it okay for them to start a criminal career and stuff <laughs> yep. like that? So, yeah. In, in the law of the Pennycroft textbook Yeah, in world. the criminal law elements. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So they're all my friends in the um, problem questions. Oh, oh no way. There you go. Friends and family. Yeah. Nice. My parents go on a murder spree, actually. <laughs> yeah, Russell and Dinah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess going on to what you're actually, again, here to talk about, <laughs> is all of your research, which has covered a huge variety of different topics. But I guess where we'll start is probably your earlier research, which is regulation of the sex industry. And I guess what we wanted to know is how is it actually regulated? Um, is it legal? Is it not? The main thing that I focused on was brothels, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they are able to operate as legitimate businesses as of 1995. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's very... So what happened was I was teaching criminology and students could do community projects as part of that, and I used to get this guy come in from Sex Workers Outreach Project and talk about stuff that sex workers need res- needed research on and um, resources and things like that. And after a while, I thought, actually, I think this needs kind of higher level research on it. And no one was really, no academics were research, no legal academics were researching it in the area. And so one of the things that I found fascinating was even though the law had changed, people's perceptions about brothels haven't changed. And Mm -hmm. you even have it even in the media today where there's this big hullabaloo if a sex worker has come yeah. to Parliament or something. And I'm like, it's a legitimate profession, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a job. Yeah. And um, so anyway, one of the things that we did that was really fun and cool was we rang up, we, uh, we did a survey of people living in Sydney City and Parramatta about whether they knew that they lived near a brothel and mm. how they felt about it. Mm. Um, because prior to that time, every the only research that people had was objections to brothels coming into the area as opposed to how mm. people actually felt about them once they had come into the area. Yeah. And so um, one of the cool things... Uh, so we, did, we couldn't out that there was a brothel in the area. So if someone didn't know, we'd say, oh, what are the businesses in your area kind of thing? You can't mm. ethically mm-hmm. out it. Anyway, we found that most people in Sydney City, surprise, surprise, knew that they lived near a brothel and didn't care about it. Mm. Most people in Parramatta City didn't know that they lived near a brothel, Mm -hmm. but if they did know about it, they tended to be quite unhappy about it. Mm. So we found out, like, how did they find out about the brothel? Was it because of amenity impacts or was it what actually had happened is they were told by media or council that there was a brothel nearby. Otherwise, chances were that they wouldn't actually know about it. Mm -hmm. Um, But one of the great things that we found out was that it didn't matter if you lived in Parramatta City or Sydney City, if you'd knowingly lived near a brothel for three years or more, then chances were you were neutral or positive about it. And also uh, a lot of people said, I objected to the brothel coming into the area and I appeared before the Land and Environment Court, which mm. is cool because they do on-site visits. It's really cool. <laughs> you can go to these on-site visits and stand where the brothel's going to be and, wow. you know, wow. people come and voice their objections. Mm. It's really cool to do. Anyway, um, so all these people were saying, I feel a bit embarrassed that I was so anti the brothel. In fact, they've been a great neighbour. So it was called the Good Neighbour project and Mm -hmm. we did a lot of research on it and basically we were saying you know like any other legitimate business they can be a good 
business um, and they can operate well with minimal negative amenity impacts. And often the land and environment court focuses on structural things to make sure that you don't have negative noise impacts so double glazing of glass and stuff so noise doesn't come out Mm -hmm. but sex workers kind of say we're professionals and we're probably quieter than the amateurs kind of thing Mm -hmm. and then the other thing to think of with uh brothels as well is the disability people with disabilities and support people with disabilities are profoundly in support of uh the legalization of brothels and a lot of the planning decisions require disability access Mm -hmm. and I actually think it would be a really cool jurisprudential question because one of the things that's up for grabs at the moment with the NDIS is whether or not people with disabilities should be able to access should have access to sex workers paid for by Mm. the NDIS and you have sex workers who are trained like they they're they're really serious about their jobs and Mm -hmm. they go and get training of how to ascertain consent for example, um, and how to work with someone with severe physical or mental disabilities. It's, it's a really important area. So, legal. Wow. And I had, I had cutting edge in Australia, like cutting yeah. edge internationally. Like, I went over to England and I went to a strip, uh, no, a pole dancing workshop. This mm-hmm. is the kind of stuff you do. Mm. And it turned out that pole dancing, was like that um, stripping was kind of the... Um, most legal that you could have in terms of the sex industry, mm-hmm. although you could work from home because a man's home is his castle or a person's home is their castle. Uh, so you could have a you could work from home, but otherwise you, uh, sex work illegal in England. And I thought, wow, Australia is so much so so much further ahead. New mm. South Wales is so much further ahead than the rest of the world in this area. Yeah. When you say work from home, was it that the person buying, it was at their home? No. Or they had sort of... Yeah, so so they're called home ox. Yeah. Um, and home ox make up about 40 to 50% of the industry mm-hmm. in New South Wales. And they offer a very different service often from brothels. Mm-hmm. So brothels might be about the experience of going to a brothel and there's ones where people go in groups and stuff like that, although there's also very discreet ones as well, whereas home occupations are usually from a person's home. Um, You often have uh, gay male services from that for people particularly who aren't out, for Mm -hmm. example, for their clients who aren't out or don't identify as gay. But then you also have um, a lot of older sex workers have said, I like working from home because I can decide who I'm going to provide services to and what those services Mm. are. So for Mm. me, it's very much a kind of workers' right, feminist perspective about people having a say in what they work. And I've been to some home ops and they're very proud Mm. of their business and they have it separate. It's kind of like you have a, you know, you have your study or your office. Mm. So they have their, you know, workplace set out separately Mm. um and uh jason Pryor, who i've done lots of research in this area with he um looked at complaints about uh sex services premises which is not like there's lots of different types of sex services premises so if you say brothels people have a particular image but Mm. so he looked at complaints about sex services premises and one sydney city is very quick at Responding, So people kind of feel like it's going to be regulated and regulated well. But then secondly, there's just almost never a home oc complaint. And people usually don't know that they live next to a home oc unless yeah. the person doing it tells them. Yeah, okay. that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. 
A home lock's legal in New South Wales? Yeah. Oh, oh no. It's kind of... Um, <laughs> so all the local councils have different definitions. Okay. okay. Um, and so it, they're in an ambiguous position. Mm. So it's kind of weird then when you have like, you know that brothel buster, there's a brothel buster who gets regularly quoted in the Sun Herald and stuff like that. Anyway. Brothel buster. Yeah, and they talk about this huge illegal industry in New South Wales, and you're kind of like, well, actually, I, you know, I'm not sure that they they might be in an ambiguous yeah. um, uh, situ- legal situation where it's not really clear, and and they haven't really ever gone to court and things like that. So yeah. where it's probably cutting edge is more to do with um, massage parlors that provide sexual mm. services, yeah. and they're kind of, you know, is it like because of a particularly demanding client or is it like a practice and and you know this was something i left open because i've tr- i've tried to move away from the sex industry research because it felt like not much had changed mm. in all the years i've been yep. doing it um but uh one of the things that i kind of wonder is does it matter you know like if it's you know done safely and cleanly and you know does it matter mm. like why do they have to be defined as a sex services premises and Mm. But yep. that's my personal opinion. You mentioned feminism before. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What is and what is your response to people that say the sex industry is anti-feminist or that it promotes sex trafficking? Well, there's two different things. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but, so yeah. on the sex trafficking one, the sex trafficking stuff drives me a bit nuts. Yeah. So America has adopted the policy that. Uh, prostitution leads to sex trafficking Mm. so they have basically criminalized all sex work except Mm -hmm. for in nevada with a very small number of brothels Mm -hmm. um and what this means is you have a huge illegal market and an illegal market attracts huge profits Mm. that is where you earn your money from sex slavery so in new south wales and i've talked to the anti-slavery people in uh, uts and they agree with me is that the, the huge profits are pretty much taken out mm. by, by legalising legalizing yeah. Yeah. and regulating. And we do it like, you know, that the industry is legalised and regulated, whereas in Victoria and Queensland they only have a limited number of brothels that are legalised. So you still have quite a large not legal industry, whereas in New South Wales we have a predominantly lawful industry and you can make money from um, unsafe sex, the illegal money. You can make illegal money from unsafe sex or offering underage sex. But otherwise, your opportunities for making huge profits have been erased. Mm. So to me, it's a problem that is created by law yeah, as opposed to something that is inherent to sex work. Yeah. Yeah. And in terms of the feminist stuff, I guess for me, I take a very kind of pragmatic approach here and I've had people talk to me about it where I've said you know legalizing has led to either neutral or an improvement of sex workers lives Mm -hmm. so um, when I was talking about this over in England at an international conference they were like but what about these people what about these people it's like pretty like no one has been disadvantaged no sex worker has been disadvantaged by decriminalisation. Yeah. They've, their lives have either stayed the same or they have improved. And, and and I've done a lot of research on if you... 
Uh, working in the industry, it makes a huge difference if it's lawful because, you know, you can call the police if someone assaults you, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and also, yeah, you're not attracting the, like, yeah, it's the same with the brothels as well. So for me, I just say, like, on a practical level, it's a positive thing, you know. Mm. And so you can talk abstractly, but it, it's also not my experience of the sex workers who I have met who yep. are incredibly well-informed and passionate hmm. about what they're doing hmm. as well. Sorry, with the calling the police thing, is the argument that if the if sex work is illegal, then a woman that actually has been assaulted or, you know, something bad has happened to her that she doesn't consent to, she wouldn't be able to call the police, or if she did, she would be the person that's yes. arrested? Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's the same with brothels yep. as well. So, so um, they used to be high-cash businesses. Mm-hmm. Partly because even when you had credit cards, they could be traced back to the mm. brothel, and yep. you know. Whereas now it's different, mm. um, and so yeah. And there was a concern about also bikies being associated with brothels, and I'm kind of like, mm-hmm. well, in what way, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's it. If you treat them as normal businesses, they're going to act like normal businesses. Mm-hmm. That's my argument. Yeah, yeah. makes sense. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It, it <laughs> seems so simple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. As long as everything's above board, like no one wants to live in a or work in a profession that they feel like they're hiding, right? Or yeah. You you want to be above board if you can be. So mm. yeah, makes so much sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, some of the other interesting work that Penny has done over time is a lot of work relating to the Banking Royal Commission. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your work in that area? Uh, so I I like to look at royal commissions or big inquiries because Mm. I find that they get a lot of the primary evidence for me and then they leave it untheorised. And so I'm doing a big project on evil corporations in criminal law, horror and philosophy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And as part of that... um, so, so the idea behind it is that criminal law is not very good at handling all the harms done by large organisations. And when I say large organisations, I'm including, for example, the state, but also like the Catholic Church and things like mm. that. Because if you talk about corporations, then you're talking about something very specific and narrow. And I want mm. to avoid that. So criminal law is crap at handling those harms and they almost never hit the criminal law. And you're not taught it in criminal law. It doesn't even feature mm. in mm. criminal law textbooks and things like that. Um, but in horror film, uh, evil corporations are central mm. to it. Yep. Uh, and so what I've been doing is looking at wrongs done by large organisations and theorising about that without the horror, but then also hooking in horror as well. Mm-hmm. So I haven't particularly done that with the Banking Royal Commission, but one of the fun things I did recently with the Royal <laughs> Banking Royal Commission was analysed front page news stories where the banks denied wrongdoing. Mm. Mm. Um, and the thing that got me was there was a We're Not Criminal was the front page headline <laughs> yeah. of the Sydney Morning Herald. And I was like, this is awesome. And so there's a theorist called Stanley Cohen who's mm. more famous for moral panic theory. So moral panic theory is the idea where people freak out about something in the community and you're not really sure if it actually exists or not and so one of the areas that they talk about for example would be race crime Mm. for example but also there used to be like there was a fear like 15 20 years ago about juveniles with knives and you know Mm. like it's like this you know that there's a panic kind of Mm. thing but then cohen started to think about well what about the opposite where bad stuff is really happening but nothing 
happens. Yeah. And so he developed this theory called denial. And he talks about how there's literal denial. This is like 20 years ago. And you like now you think about Trump. So literal denial didn't happen. So you're just denying the facts. Yeah. So fake news. Mm. Interpretive denial. Uh, it happened, but it's not what you think. So the mm. banks were kind of saying, yeah, 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 we did charge dead people uh, for um, services provided that we didn't provide. We, pro- we charge fees for no services, but it's not criminal. It's or, or the weirdest one was where the bank said it's not this crime, it's that crime. And mm. I'm like, wow. And then the <laughs> third one is implicatory denial where they're kind of like, yeah, 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 we did it. But what are you going to do about it kind of thing? Which is kind of what's happened with the Banking Royal Commission. And they're also talking about reducing all the rules associated with lending and things like that. But, yeah, the denial theory is gold. And it's particularly important, I think, for large organisations because it's so hard to get at the truth, really. Mm -hmm. And so you've got that also with the military inquiry at the moment, the... um, Oh, we're just denying the awards well. yeah for yeah stripping the awards yeah yeah for yeah the war crime. but even the war yeah. crime stuff like there's yeah. all that denial and mm. things like that there so um and yeah you can apply it anywhere so yeah i did that one and then i did one comparing basically combining the um, institutional responses to child sexual abuse age care and the banking royal commission mm. and i said what these three have in common are harms that are predictable. Like all of them have mm. duties of care in res- in relation to specific things like, um, uh, you know, if you care for kids yes, <laughs> as an institution, they're, they're, you're recognised as a site of risk for child sexual abuse. Like there's these rules there. Yep. It's the same with aged care and I focused on elder abuse and then with banks theft. Mm you know, dishonesty. Yeah. And so there and and what you have in common across all three were systemic failures to protect against those um, harms. Mm. And so I argued that and, and so then I pull in wickedness theory, which says there are different forms of wickedness. The one that we focus on is intentional wrongdoing and action. Mm-hmm. Whereas the one that's more appropriate for large organizations is a really old theory of wickedness of wickedness as an absence of goodness as Mm. a failure Mm. or lack so that's what my big theory is all about about trying to establish that that kind of systemic failure in organizations across long periods of time like there's a reason why child sexual abuse occurred at some schools for long periods of time and not at others and it's because of the people and systems around them failing to report what institutions <laughs> in particular are failing and why? I think it's Just, pretty broad brush. Yeah, and, yeah. And it's, you know, I've, I'm always working on something and at the moment I'm looking at Crown Casinos, which mm. is awesome. Yeah. Oh, That's talk really about good. that. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> we all have different connections to Crown. <laughs> It's like Crown, and I wanted to go and stay at Crown Resorts just to kind of, you know, do research. It is really nice. I, I went Did to one of the s- restaurants. Oh, because it's 900 it a night no, to stay don't, there. Don't have that. Oh, <laughs> it's meant to be six star. Wow. Wait, that's but, a... Is that... Is that a thing? <laughs> I thought it was that a yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. anyway, I'm not going to do that. But, um, so, Honey and I have just written a paper looking at um, how, like, they were overtly based on a criminal model because they weren't allowed to have electronic 
gaming machines. They mm. relied on Chinese high rollers and you're not allowed to gamble in China yep. or bring more than $5,000 out yeah. and gambling debts aren't enforced. So at the time that they proposed the casino mm. in Sydney saying we're going to rely on Chinese high rollers was when they started cracking down on um, gambling in China. Yeah, mm -hmm. And so it's an expressly, like, if not criminal kind of skating so like you can say that you're importing the that you're bringing these people to australia to stay at the resort as opposed to necessarily to gamble but it's a very fine approach to take yeah so um and then so so one of the arguments we're making is that it actually makes sense as a business model for them to continuously break Mm. the law, including mm. with money laundering as well, because every dollar that goes through, whether it's gambled or you're just cleaning the money, is still money that goes into the coffers of Crown and mm. therefore goes into the coffers of the state, yep. which gets 10% of its revenue from gambling, Yeah, mm, wow. you know, or 13% in Victoria. Um, and so for them, it there's no regular, there's been no regulatory blowback until yeah. the Bergen inquiry. And so, I think the reason why the Bergen inquiry, I've been wondering why did the Bergen inquiry come about, mm -hmm. given that they've been rubber stamping licenses for years. Mm. And I think it's because they recognized that the business model wasn't gonna be viable in New South Wales, maybe. Mm. I don't wasn't know. Because they, they, they signed a deal with Star. So yeah. New South Wales government signed a deal with Star that, um, Crown would not be able to use electronic gaming machines for the mm. next couple of decades mm -hmm. or something, which is usually where the casino would be getting about half its money, yeah. which is mostly from problem gamblers, yeah. which is its own kind of problem, mm. and, or from Chinese high rollers who can't travel because of COVID and plus um, can't really be doing it legally in New South Wales. So I'm wondering if that's why it's come about, but yeah. Crown Resorts is awesome. Do you awesome. think the reason why they haven't been reprimanded as such yet, we'll see, um, is because the government is getting such a high cut? Well, it's not so and much. Like so one of the questions, so Victoria definitely. So they're called the Vatican in Victoria wow. apparently <laughs> because they just weren't really... Um, the, it was like the laws, it was a separate legal area. Hmm. And one of the things that came to light as a consequence, so apparently there is an organised crime group that calls itself the company, and it's the corporatization <laughs> of uh, organised crime. So mm. basically mm -hmm. they are manufacturing drugs. Apparently they manufacture a large quantity of drugs for Australia, yeah. methamphetamines like 60 to 70% or something like that. And they were cleaning their money at uh, Crown Casino. Mm -hmm. But they basically do it on an industrial scale of manufacturing drugs and they treat it like a business and yeah. things like that. And so, there's yeah, all this stuff has come to light. It's pretty awesome. Uh, yeah. Wow. That's really so, a surprising as well because I feel like <laughs> I feel like the commentary that's coming from that, at least that I'm reading, is oh, uh, there's some management problems that needs to be sorted out. But you know, get rid of the bad eggs, new executive, yeah. and then 
it'll be fine. They'll get their license back. Yeah. So um, that's partly also because the New South Wales government has signed a contract that they um, will work with Crown for them to get a license. And if they don't, then they have to pay Crown compensation. Yeah. So, but the Bergen inquiry definitely suggested that it was a governance issue and you get rid of the directors and you can fix the culture. Mm -hmm. But then one of the things that Honey and I are talking about is that, you know, the purpose of corporations, the legal purpose of corporations is to pursue profit. Like Mm. that's what they're meant to do. That's what they're made to do. So everything that it's been doing is in accordance with the pursuit of profit, Mm. basically. Yeah. Um, Just not. And so so we kind of do it more as a critique of the corporate form as opposed to a governance, necessarily a governance issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Um, What would be adequate or what needs to be done for corporations to be held more accountable? That's well, a huge question. No, no, no. And I mean, that's kind of like, it's quite fun trashing things, but mm. then there's that thing in theory where you're meant to kind of go, okay, I've trashed this. Like, what, what, what are my alternatives? So one of the things that you can do is to have um, built into corporations something that was done historically was that you build in a, a purpose, like a positive purpose, and mm. that you... and um, there's a lot of movement in England and Australia, sorry, England and America about um, stakeholders, that you broaden the concept of stakeholders beyond the shareholders to include employees and the environment and things like that. Mm. Mm-hmm. But if you're doing like a, you know, Milton Friedman analysis of the corporation, the corporation is designed to pursue profit, yeah. you know, yeah. and all these other costs, including, you know, the tremendous damage imposed by colonial history and things like that, which was accomplished partly by these corporations like East India Company mm. and things like that, mm. is you externalise harms and you just focus on profit. And that's what they're designed to do. So... Yeah, you can you can maybe change the design. So I've I've written an article looking at the movie Aliens mm-hmm. with uh, Sigourney Weaver, who I considered as a bargain. Yeah, nice. but I actually don't know how much fun she'd be. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, and in that I kind of um, talk about you know, there's this whole thing about corporations being a a person mm. that we have created Hmm. which so i'm doing an analysis of them as monstrous because they're obviously not people Mm. anyway that's an aside legal fiction uh but they're a legal fiction if they're a legal fiction they're a fiction that we have written Mm. so maybe we should rewrite that fiction in a different way yeah which is kind of what's happening in america in a bad way like where they're kind of saying you know they're legal people so they should have a political voice and they can refuse oh. con- contraception and things, you know, stuff yep. like that. So, yep. um, yeah, there's, I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent sure where to go mm. with it. But the other thing that I've noticed across the board, regulators, mm-hmm. like the regulators have been completely undermined, like in the crown situation, there was this modernization review in 2016, which you can pretty much slate home a lot of the problems to crown (laughs) at this time where they're like, we can trust organisations to self-regulate. They're transnational corporations. They meet the minimum standard in each jurisdiction, you know. So they don't kind of, they they say that they're, you know, opposed to money laundering and opposed to problem gambling and things like that. And, but they only meet the minimum standard they're required. So, Mm -hmm. so one of the things you can do is you, instead of deregulation and neoliberalism, you instead focus on, 
regulation. Yeah. You have good regulations and you fund it. Yeah. And you investigate and you enforce as opposed yeah. to accepting what the corporation is telling you. Mm. Yeah. It just yeah. feels like the regulators, though, are just being cut off at the knees all the time. Like, oh, yeah, 100%. Everything I'm reading now about APRA, like the organisation who regulates the lending from the banks, are saying, you know, come on, we've got we to gotta ease up on these standards, we've got to ease up on these standards. And in my mind, I'm thinking, didn't we just agree that we were too lax with the lending? I find it lending? astounding. And, that, and that's the other thing that you have with these royal commissions yeah. and inquiries is the deja vu is horrific. Mm. <laughs> you yeah. know, like especially the child sex ones, yeah. you know. And I, you know, have been teaching criminal law for a really long time. I, the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse, I could really only read for about an hour yeah. and then I'd have to stop. And my despair came about from people and systems and regulators just not doing anything. And, mm. and one of the best examples of that was um, a school teacher who had formed the opinion after several complaints being made against another teacher that, yes, child sexual abuse was going on and they said well why didn't you report it and um the teacher said well it wasn't my job it's the principal's job and they said but you knew the principal wasn't going to report it and she said yeah but it wasn't my job you know Mm. and it's that so yeah you can talk about that that just that failure to act and that wiping your hands clean and it's kind of like you read these Examples, and it's the same, you know, with the banking stuff. Although mm. <laughs> people didn't have as much problem with it, uh, but also the aged care, like mm. the elder abuse, does not happen in isolation. Like you will have witnesses. Like you can't mm. be doing it. I mean, if you're talking about at an aged care home, and yeah, you just kind of think if just one person had stood up and said, or if the regulators, you know, had been funded sufficiently to be able to Mm. turn up and investigate instead of just rubber stamping based on, you know, the policies that you've got on the web page kind of thing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that more people would um, step up or would have if it was A, maybe happening to them or B, they weren't scared for losing their job or their of the shame associated with Yeah, I mean reporting. I think I think it would be so there's they talk about like group things. So I, I did yeah. an analysis of Larry Nasser, you know, the American gym coach who abused about five hundred kids. And it's know. there's a documentary on it called Athlete A. And that is a shocking example of you know, people not being threatened. Like, they're not in danger. Their jobs aren't in danger. But you do have a situation where the few people who did speak up were, like, if you were professional and you spoke up, you were basically told to shut up kind of thing. But um, also the the kids who spoke up were silenced. You Mm. know, whether at the first, you know, like, that can't be happening, we know Larry as if he would do that, or it would be taken to court and you'd have non-disclosure. Yeah. Like, so there is a sil- – like, it's not that people aren't speaking up. There is a sil- an active silencing mm-hmm. um, going on. And, and I find it really interesting of why people don't speak okay. out. But also the systems being in place. Because what I found, like, with the child sexual abuse stuff was that 
this person would complain to that person, this person would complain to that person. If they don't speak, if they spoke together, they'd go, you know, mm. there's multiple complaints here. But if they don't speak, if the processes aren't in place, then it's not going to go anywhere. Even more disturbing in one of the cases, the sex offender was the person you reported mm. the problems mm. to, yeah. for example. But, yeah, there's um, – so it's people, but it's also having the processes in place as well. Yeah. But it also ain't that hard. Like, there are organisations mm-hmm. who do it mm. right, you yeah. know. I remember learning about this study done in the US, can't remember exactly what it was called, but talking about group think, um, where I think it was like recorded footage of like someone falling over like in the street Mm. and everyone will walk past because you assume that someone else is going to help that person up. Yeah. Um, Whereas if it was not a busy street and there was only one person walking past, they would help that person up. Yeah. And other experiments like that. Yeah. There's also the Milgram experiments Mm. as Mm. well about whether you would electric shock Oh, someone yeah. if if a do- if a person in a lab coat is telling you, telling you to, to do it, and, yeah. and the percentage was like sixty to seventy percent would go to the death rate. Yeah, you know, high, like, yeah. And it, it's really funny because I teach it in Wickedness and Vice, where we talk about you know, do you think the results would be the same today? You know, are we as obedient now as mm. we were then? Mm. And people are like, no, no, but we are. You know, like mm. when they've tried to replicate it, and they're not allowed to ethically anymore <laughs> to oh, yeah. do the same things. But they've found like it pretty much continues across time and place. But having one person speak up encourages other people yeah. to speak up. Yeah, I think that's big in like sexual assault and rape allegations as well. Often yeah. when one person yeah. finally speaks up, then others will. Yeah, as well. Very cool. One idea I had. Um, just to take it back to the corporate side and you're, you're talking about maybe we rewrite this legal fiction, is one possible suggestion something around like piercing the corporate veil, like maybe executives, um, you know, this distinction is not as clear and maybe the executives now have to bear more of this burden for wrongdoing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I uh, in some ways agree, but I also think that there's a tendency in criminal law to think about people. Yeah. And we have a we have great difficulty. We, we're not great at groups like you probably like complicity and, you know, like they're exceptions rather and they're messy. Mm. I don't know if you remember studying complicity, but it's a mess like mm-hmm. as an area. And so for me, I kind of feel like I'm focusing on that organisational aspect. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things I found striking was I was... Um, engage with the Australian Law Reform Commission about, you know, corporate criminal law reform. And one of the things was that, you know, a lot of the people involved just didn't believe that a corporation could be an entity that acted, that that could be found culpable Mm -hmm. separate from individuals, that you had to find individuals that were culpable, that Mm -hmm. an organisation couldn't be culpable. Mm -hmm. What's an Um, example of where a corporation would be culpable so a good example um i can't remember the name of the case but it's a british case where um basically they left um the doors of the ferry open Mm -hmm. the seabrugger disaster and um the ferry sank and all these people died yep that is an example where there is no one individual that is responsible it's Mm. lots of different individuals and basically this judge said this corporation had a disease of sloppiness. 
Mm. you know. And that would be an example where I would talk about the corporation being responsible. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at that time, they were found not guilty. The directors were found not guilty, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. because they just didn't have mens rea. But I'm kind of saying, well, that lack of mens rea is part of the problem, mm-hmm. you know, because mm-hmm. everything in large organisation makes sure that that kind of awkward information doesn't get to you, which you saw with the banks yeah. yep. as well, with the Banking Royal Commission. Yeah. So yeah. holding, you know what you need to know. <laughs> yeah. It's a diffusion of knowledge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So holding corporations accountable would mean that someone is still accountable in those situations where particular individuals can't be pinpointed. Yeah, or the organisation is responsible. Yeah, so, yeah, and, yeah. It, and it kind of, like, so there's people who say, look, we talk about organisations mm. as organisations, mm-hmm. whereas some people say, well, that's just for convenience. You're really talking about the people yeah. kind of yeah. thing. But then if you're thinking about it in terms of technology, there are increasing arguments that organise... And the robo-debt is mm. an example yeah. of yeah. that, actually, yeah. Yeah. where, you know, yeah, the algorithms were wrong and they were set up wrong, but everything that the government did was to remove pe- remove uh, people from the appeals and process. So basically you had to deal with everything electronically and... You know, that would be an example. I'd probably say the federal government was responsible there. But um, where you've got an organisation just kind of... that It's the it's that which is at fault, you mm. know, not a particular individual or person, you know. Yeah. So in criminal law, a lot of punishment is centred particularly towards individuals. So, yeah. like, you know, jet, prison, yeah. et cetera. What would be the punishments for corporations? And if it's fines, yeah. is that enough particularly for like huge corporations that have yeah deep pockets yeah i mean and one so there's a few issues so one there's the argument that you're holding innocent shareholders like they're the ones who lose money and i'm kind of like yeah but you've been profiting from the wrongdoing like you think about crown resorts but another example though in relation to the fines is that you can kind of say especially if they're civil is you can kind of say um it's a menu of harms and you can kind of decide if you are willing to pay the menu of harms as you know like there's no kind of expressive aspect there that you have done the wrong thing Mm -hmm. so that was why i found that banking royal commission that throughout so there's this argument by large organizations that you know why bother with criminal law civil law is enough Mm. kind of thing but why then were the banks so adamant that what they were doing wasn't criminal like they did everything they could argue pretty much that what they'd done wasn't criminal that Mm -hmm. it was immoral that it was negligent or lax or whatever but they just didn't want that label criminal so there is a power in the label Mm -hmm. of criminality and you look at the Land and Environment Court, which has quite imaginative punishments mm-hmm. for organisations. Because often uh, you might have local councils involved, for example, in illegal dumping. Uh, and if you punish the local council, you're obviously punishing the people who live in the area and things like that. So what they do is they you know, require you to clean up the mess that you've made, but also they might require some kind of other reclamation project for you know, the community and things like mm-hmm. that, or you take out an ad in the paper saying we were bad, we were wrong, kind of, mm-hmm. you know, wow. stuff like yeah. that. So we can be innovative and imaginative. Yep. And there mm-hmm. are some theorists who argue in favour of the corporate death penalty uh-huh. as well. You know, uh-huh. like corporations don't have a right to exist, you know. Yeah. They're legal fictions, mm. you know. They're created by law. They can mm. be killed by law. So, mm. 
Yeah. <laughs> wow. If, if you had a corporate death penalty, wouldn't it be pretty easy to just... Or would all their money be taken away from them? Or would Ooh, they just start up another company in a new Yeah. Because it's because one of the things so one of the things I that got me into the corporate into the horror movie thing mm. was I was looking at how do you resolve an evil corporation? Yeah. So the criminal law would say you kill off the you resolve the directing mind like you change like in Crown Casinos mm. is a classic example you fix the directing mind and they come good mm. again and it's in some horror movies um, you know that you kill off the CEO and suddenly it becomes a good corporation yeah. mm-hmm. but then you look at like Stranger Things where you, sorry, spoiler alert, where you kill the director of the lab at the end of season one Mm. and then the evil corporation comes back more evil Mm -hmm. than ever Mm. with a different kind of director, like same system, same experiments, but worse kind of thing. And to me, that's a more realistic portrayal of corporations. So we need to get more imaginative (laughs) about how we deal with evil corporations and the directing mind theory ain't enough yeah it's kind of like the theory that strict strict parents create creative children yeah like (laughs) i don't know if you've heard that but that you create like sneaky children that will then work out how to get around the rules Mm, interesting yeah yeah i mean corporations like the theory in this area says you know that they just regard law as an obstacle that they need to get around so they'll find a loophole in the way of profit try and get profit Mm. yeah yeah yeah, wow. it's fun though. Like it is cool. That's yeah. Very cool. But when yeah. I read the paper, I'm like, oh, I should write about that. I should write like this. A lot out there. Yeah. Maybe the I last question we'll give you: movie recommendations for evil corporations. If oh. we're going to watch one from your research, what's like a good one? Maybe where the villain really gets oh. snuffed out, or just a great story. Oh, that's a great. I went to a global horror conference. <laughs> oh. No and way. I did it basically <laughs> on if we're going to talk as about corporations as monsters, what sort of monsters are they? Mm. Mm. Like, let's be specific. I mean, Aliens is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's really great. Yeah. Um, and they pulled me up because they were like, why do you always write about blockbusters? Mm. And I'm like, well, kind of because I like them. Like, I, you know, I have very low standards in movies and I want to be entertained. Yeah. But also um, I'm writing about law mm. and most law audiences don't watch horror. Mm. So I need to do accessible things that most of you would have heard of. Like that's the reason why. But, yeah, I, I reckon Aliens is pretty awesome. I love Stranger Things. Yeah. And I'm really interested in Resident Evil because okay. there's a whistleblower in the last of the series, of which the, it's it's completely pulp and and ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I'm I'm uh, that's probably going to be my next move is to focus on Resident Evil, where you have um, different cultures within an organisation, which is one of the critiques about corporate culture. But mm. yeah, I yeah. watch a lot of horror, so it's hard for me to think of. I love uh, Twenty Eight Days Later. is probably one of my favourite oh, horrors. Yeah which starts with an evil corporation that is instantly resolved and is not part of the question of culpability and responsibility. Mm. Uh, and also The Shining is one of my all-time mm. favourite horrors. And Shaun of the Dead. Yeah, a bit lighter. Classic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they're not necessarily good evil corporation movies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Very <laughs> cool. Okay, I've got some for my list. You've got some homework to do. <laughs> okay, well... Penny, thank you so much. My pleasure. Yeah, it was fun. Well, we better sign out. I've been Georgia. I've been Nick. And we'll see you next time at the bar.